Hello and welcome to The Stack. This week we speak with Sayali Goyal from Cocoa and Jasmine, an Indian-based cultural publication. Plus, the return of Newscapologist, a magazine on the art and science of scape. And finally, we welcome back Arjun Chada from hip-hop title Get Familiar. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with Sayali Goyal from Indian-based cultural publication Cocoa and Jasmine. The annual title is a visual documentation of craft, arts and design with relation to place and travel. It was great to welcome Sayali to our studio. Cocoa and Jasmine started about six years ago, and I was traveling in South India, which is why the name Cocoa from Cocoa Fields of Kunur and Jasmine from the Jasmine Fields of Madurai. So it was a very sort of like sort of spiritual, poetic experience for me, you know, when I was traveling. And I realized that because I come from a textile background, but I had such varied dynamic interest, a print magazine is exactly the kind of manifestation of all my creative endeavors. So I decided that I would create a magazine which was about Global South, cultures, you know, which have so much to offer, but it would be so amazing to have a print magazine talk about them. I wanted to create a publication which spoke about creative people, but also independent practitioners who have lots of multiple disciplines. And a lot of publications tend to focus on very specific things. So I saw that sort of gap, and hence the publication covers cross-cultural creatives, but also multidisciplinary creatives. You mentioned Global South there, and I feel that a lot of the places, and I can see some of the countries here featured in Issue 5, are underreported, I feel, as well. So 100%. I think, I mean, just look at Issue 5 in the front of, of course, Egypt, Uzbekistan. I mean, that's yeah, fascinating, right? It is, right? I always wanted to go to Uzbekistan. I'm really glad I did for this one. But also, like, I mean, I come from India, and I feel mm. like there's a, uh, there are certain kind of stories that are told from India, but there's so much more to offer, right? So I think through our publication, Issue 4 and 5, we were able to cover Portugal, Morocco, India, Egypt, Jordan, places that people want to go to, but they don't know what it can offer apart from, you know, the typical sort of touristy, mainstream kind of travel journalism. And I think, you know, we were able to look at architecture, we were able to look at food, we were able to look at textiles, which is something that you don't know where to find stories on, you know, those subjects. When I started to research those destinations, I couldn't find stories on them. So, so yeah. So you have to create the stories then. <laughs> uh, and, and where are you based actually in India? Well, that's a very difficult question to answer because like I'm always on the road, but I grew up in Delhi and still I spend most of my time in Delhi which is the capital city. But I do have a studio space in Jaipur and now I have a very active project in Punjab. So I would say I'm based out of North India. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I'm curious, I mean, as well, we'll go back to Coco and Jasmine. How is it to make a magazine in India? How, tell us a bit more about 
the print situation in India? Of course, mm. I'm, not, I'm not asking you to be the expert on that, but how, how does it feel to make an well, independent Well, I have to say it was a bit of a challenge because mm. I think, you know, the market here in the UK, you have a lot of independent publications, so at least people understand mm. the ecosystem and it goes the same for Europe as well. But when I started the publication, an independent publication was unheard of, right? So when I would tell people that I am going to start a publication, it was almost like they were almost confused. So there isn't an industry for independent publications. I had to work with a press who would otherwise create beautiful books, but they didn't create publications because they didn't quite understand the quality that I was looking for. So I would say it's still a bit of a... Uh, start in India, you know, the idea of zines, independent publications, and people are opening themselves to this idea of, a, you know, once a year, advert-free publication. But yeah, I'm I'm really glad I did it at a time where I had that kind of being one of the first people to do it, because then you can actually experiment a lot more and fine-tune what you want to do, because there's no fixed template of how to do it. Having said that, we do produce in India, but we distribute worldwide. So I won't call it, you know, an Indian publication only because we're always like covering stories from around the globe and maximum readers are in this part of the world. Because I was going to ask, where can people actually find a copy of Coco and Jasmine as well? Well, we distribute through a lot of independent stores Mm -hmm. here at Mac Culture and Sriji, quite close to your office. I like Um, Sandeep. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But also lots of stores in Europe and the US, India, a selected few. Uh, People who are in like, you know, all different parts can order it from our web shop. But yeah, at the moment, our distributorship is very hand-picked. We want to be at stores where the right kind of community can interact with the publication. Let's talk a bit about the design. I mean, comparing issue four with five, there's been some changes. Right. The format's a little bit smaller. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the cover for issue five. Uh, Thank I you. think you were talking that it's a little bit maximalist, but I actually find it super elegant. Uh, and I love the color that you chose as well. Uh-huh. Tell us about some of those design changes in the magazine. Well, thank you for saying that. I, I have to say it was a bit of a risk that I was taking by mm-hmm. being maximalist because this is the first time we did an illustration as well but I felt you know after visiting Egypt, Jordan Uzbekistan I felt like I needed to embrace the vibe of those cultures and create something which was authentic to that right and I wanted to have a little bit of fun as well because it's our fifth year of the publication so it's a little bit of a celebratory issue I buy a lot of books and I am a hoarder and I realized the scale of the book just the way it feels in your hand I've started to buy a lot of books when they're small and easily go in my bag. And I started to take that notice and I realized that maybe a smaller book would make a lot of sense for Coco and Jasmine as well because we do want to create a versatile product. I would love it when, you know, a biker can just put it in his bag and, you know, take it to work, read it on a tube or something like that. It it doesn't have to just be this book on your coffee table. So yeah, it was a little bit of an experiment, but so far it's been well received. So that's nice. From the destinations here, is there any one that strikes you as very special or personal to you as well? Well, I have to say Uzbekistan was really special mm. because it not just has amazing people, but food, architecture, textiles, everything was just mind-blowing and very organized travel, very safe as well. Mm-hmm. And Tashkent is so different from Samarkand, which is so different from Bukhara. So, I mean, it's definitely a place I want to go back to because I don't think I got 
enough in the 10 days that I spent there, you know. And for that matter, in Central Asia in general, I would love to go back. And very recently, I found out that I actually have Central Asian genes. So I feel like I definitely have to go back. That's amazing. Issue 5 is here. So is the magazine, the idea is to do it annually? At the moment, I think because I have four different parallel projects, mm. businesses going on with my creative agency and travel company as well. Annual just works very well for us because we only believe in primary research. So I'm only traveling to those places, reporting myself. All the photographs are original. We have an in-house team of writers who's writing it. So it's a very long process to create the magazine because, you know, we want it to be slow journalism. So at the moment, I think I'm only able to do justice if it's annual. Having said that, the dream is to make it biannual and do more destinations and hopefully have a larger network of journalists from hopefully next year. But yeah, at the moment, it is annual. Thank you very much, Sayali. And for more information on the publication, go to kokhoaandjasmine.com. Continuing the show now with the return in print of Newscapologist, a great title by Robert Ringham on the art of scape, something that is so important these days. Issue 14 is all about the witty comeback, and stories range from the performance art of melting ice to the state of British prisons. Here is Robert with more. It's the journal of the science and art of escape. So it's basically for people who want to live perhaps a little more of an unconventional life. So if perhaps they're not satisfied with the idea of full-time employment or unthinking consumerism, which really I'm not sure anyone is, they can actually turn their backs on it and try something else. So that's kind of what we do. We talk to people who've been successful in doing this or people who are still, you know, essentially trapped and they're trying to find their way out of it. And we're kind of rooting for them. So it's all about models of actually how to escape. And some of those models are quite conservative. Some of them are very radical. They all come from different corners of the world. So for example, we might have somebody talking about the stock market one minute, you know, how to save money and invest. And then the next minute we have someone like my friend Martin in Montreal, who's a professional dumpster diver. He uses, you know, society's waste basically to make his living because he would prefer to do that than have a conventional day job. Basically, the story is issue 13 was back in 2017. And that really was supposed to be the last one. It was supposed to be the end of the project. So although I'm calling it hiatus now, it was actually the intention was to finish it. But I couldn't quite let it go. It was, you know, I kept the blog going, which we'd run since the very beginning. I dabbled with things like Patreon and there's Substack. These are fine, but I kind of saw them as means to an end. And my great passion is not Patreon. <laughs> um, I'm a print kind of guy. And so people just kept saying, you know, when is the magazine coming back? And so I thought, well, let's give them the magazine. So it was partly popular demand in a small way, but partly just because I missed it and because I just couldn't stop thinking about this idea of escapology. You know, I'm an escapologist myself. I used to have day jobs. I used to be a librarian. I used to work in offices. I used to work in bookshops. But really, I just wanted to be producing culture instead of managing other people's culture. So that's my escape story. But yeah, so yeah, it just had to come back. It's amazing you mentioned escape. I mean, so how did you feel when actually you managed to find your path and perhaps stop working in libraries? The, is it a sense of liberation? I mean, I guess people feel different ways, right? But uh, specifically for you, what do you have to say? 
Yeah, a sense of liberation and also a sense of just being able to marvel at the diversity that is present in the world. Because actually, when you're growing up, it's not the same for everybody, but quite often the message from society, the message from your parents, your teachers, career advisors, you know, the adult world at large, when you're a kid growing up is, oh, you need to work hard and you need to aspire to a particular kind of middle-class lifestyle. But actually that's not true at all. You know, you, you, if you don't have those aspirations, you don't have to do that kind of work. And so when I was working as a librarian, I was also moonlighting as a stand-up comedian. <laughs> it was one of my great passions back in the day was stand-up comedy. But the great thing that comedy gave me was I would just meet so many interesting people. So I'd be in an office by day with people with a certain kind of value. And then I'd be in comedy clubs or art centers at night with people with very different kinds of values. And they were people with great integrity. You know, they lived on very little money, but they'd almost be... I'd almost meet people who were kind of like troubadours. You know, they would literally travel. They'd just go from city to city doing stand-up comedy, earning very little money, but it was enough to sustain their interesting, colourful lifestyle. And I just thought, wow, that's amazing. So I don't know if that particular example was the lifestyle for me, but it just blew everything apart. And I thought, oh, okay, you don't have to aspire to work in an office or to make a certain kind of money to support a certain kind of lifestyle. You can literally do anything. So yeah, that's the most liberating thing for me about escape. It's not just your own personal liberty. It's also just seeing how many colors and varieties there actually are in nature and in society. It's kind of, there's so many different kinds of people doing so many different kinds of things with different levels of invention. It's actually a very creative, very diverse world out there if you can be open to that. Which is great for a magazine because then you have a lot of interesting characters. For example, I have here open at page 46 uh, your interview with the Iceman. I mean, that's a fascinating story because, you know, I, I didn't know about that. Apparently it was quite famous in the 80s. But if you can tell us perhaps about this story, I mean, this is an example of what you would find at the, the new Escapologist. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I'm so glad that out of all of the people in this magazine, he's the one you bring up first. So that's really exciting <laughs> and very funny to me. So he was famous in a very niche kind of way in mm. the 1980s. So I'm afraid this goes back to stand-up comedy again. Comedy in the 80s was not like comedy today. It was more like a cabaret situation where people had an act. You know, it wasn't just some guy in a suit talking about you know, their observations on life. It wasn't like that. It was people would, you know, you might conceivably have a juggler or a mime or somebody with some sort of physical dance performance or something. And that was kind of on its way out towards the end of the 80s as comedy became what they called the new rock and roll. You know, it was moving into observational comedy with these very rock and roll lifestyles. But before that, there were a lot of unusual people, including the Iceman. And his ice act was probably the strangest act ever. As I was doing comedy, I'd hear about the Iceman, but no one really knew where he was, what he was doing. He was just kind of a vanished phenomenon <laughs> that people would talk about. And his act was melting ice. So he would come on stage with this huge ice block and he would make a play of melting it, you know, ineffectually. And that was something I didn't know. I assumed it would just be a bucket of water by the end. But part of the joke was that he couldn't do it. <laughs> and so he, he'd say... He'd set up this block of ice on a rickety little platform and then he would breathe on it with his breath, you know, uh, as if that was going to make any difference. And then he would get the whole audience to breathe on it, you know, so he could have 50 pairs of lungs breathing hot air onto this thing. And of course, that still won't work. 
And then it escalates. He's putting a flamethrower on it and uh, trying to melt it with salt. And he uses pyrotechnics, you know, it just gets bigger and more and more dangerous. So he was this real chaos element. But apart from the act, which is obviously, I think it's hilarious, it's the lifestyle of the man as well. You know, it's, he, he decided that above everything else in life, he wanted to do this crazy ice melting act. And that's what he did. <laughs> that's genuinely what he did for 10 or 15 years of his life. And I just found that amazing. And he's a very good example of what I was saying about the color and diversity of the world. You know, who would think when you're either growing up as a little kid in the suburbs or if you're working in an office, who would think that someone like the Iceman is out there melting ice? That's, that's, <laughs> an, so that's, an amazing, that's an amazing story. And I'm very glad now I know what the Iceman is, actually. One question to you, uh, Robert, perhaps this kind of serious, but if someone is reading, do you think it's okay perhaps to feel a little bit of jealousy about some of the people featured? Because, of course, not everybody, unfortunately, can find their own escape in a way. But I think even reading that, perhaps, I mean, it can be inspirational, but it can be even little moments in life. It doesn't need to be perhaps a major life change. But what, what do you have to say? Because I have a feeling you have a lot of readers who perhaps are not escapologists yet. That's right. Well, the, the term escapologist refers to the people who've been successful and escaped, but mm. it also refers to people who are still trying. Mm. So, for example, we have a, le a letters page where people can write in and talk about their struggle. And we, you know, it's kind of there for moral support. And uh, we also have a column called Workplace Woes. That's one of the new things that we, we've done with the new edition. That was a fun one, I have to say. <laughs> oh, thank you. I, I really like that one, too. So people can write in to anonymously complain about their jobs, whether it's a current job or a past job, and they can talk about the indignities they suffer or, you know, their terrible boss or, you know, whatever is frustrating them. And we encourage those stories to be a little entertaining. We don't want people to come in with, you know, you know, huge insurmountable problems. But if you can just sort of gripe about your work a little bit, I think that's entertaining for everybody. But now to answer your question more directly, it certainly is a privilege. It is a privilege to escape. And you're right. Yeah, not everybody can do it. But the two things I would say about that are, first of all, if there is any envy, it works both ways. So I'm very envious of uh, some of my friends with more stable incomes, for example. So my all of my income comes from my books. That's very precarious. So I sometimes look at the people who've actually done the sensible thing, who maybe their day-to-day -day life is not as much fun as mine, but they're actually making money and they have a viable retirement plan. <laughs> you know, these things that I just don't have. So, you know, it is kind of a two-way thing as well. It's trade-offs, whichever mode of life you actually choose. But the other thing is, I think I'm quite honest about those trade-offs. You know, I will talk about the challenge of looking precarious employment in the, you know, look it square in the eyes, basically. You know, I'm never saying, oh, it's an easy life on the road. You know, it's easy to be a stand-up comedian. It's easy to be a dumpster diver. I never say that. I'm very honest about the challenges that life entails. But what I'm saying is actually, it is a choice. And you can do it from almost nothing. Uh, probably not from nothing. I think if you were, you know, if, if you were on negative income to begin with, yeah, you're going to struggle to escape. But if you're in a position where you actually can put aside a little money with every paycheck, you can gradually build up what I call an escape fund. And you can just go and actually, the more you accumulate, the better and the safer it'll be to escape. But if you're really sick of it and if you're willing to take a risk, you can actually just leave on very little money. So when I escaped when I was 26, I think I left with, I think it was, I managed to get like around 10,000 pounds together, which obviously today is nothing. That's absolutely zero. But uh, yeah, it was enough to actually buy enough time. I was like, oh, this equals nine months where I don't have to do any work. And in that time, I'll figure it out. You know, I'll just go and relax for a while. I'll travel, but I'll also be, 
working on my side hustle. You know, I'll be thinking about, well, what is it do I want to do? And it's interesting that those answers actually, it's very hard to answer those questions. What, what do I really want to do? It's very hard to answer that when you're having to work every day, when you're stuck on a commuter train or on the tube or whatever it is. And uh, every day is just a kind of survival situation for that one day. It's really hard to look at those broader questions and say, well, what is it? What is the thing that's truest to me? What are the things I value in the world? What is my contribution to the world going to be? It's very difficult to answer those questions when you're struggling with just the day-to-day reality of it. So what I advise people to do generally, and you know, it's your risk to take and it's your life to lead, but I would say try and finance that period of time off, like get away from your troubles and then you can actually answer those big questions and then you can decide really what it is you want to do. And it's not just about your own selfish desires either. It's about what you want to actually give. Like what is your best thing you can give? Because quite often conventional capitalist reality doesn't actually answer those questions for you. You get the job that you can get based on decisions you made when you were 14 years old, when you were trying to choose the right subjects at school. You know, people drift. We have inertia. And before you know it, you're in a job that's okay. You know, it pays the bills or whatever, but it's not really your great passion. And so to that, I say you need to stand back a little while and really ask those big questions to decide what it is you want to do. Thank you very much, Robert. And for more information, go to newscapologist.co.uk. Finally, on the show, we head to the Netherlands to speak with Arjun Chada, editor-in-chief of Get Familiar, an award-winning hip-hop publication. The title explores the intersection between hip-hop culture and the world around us. Here is Arjun with more. 50 years of hip-hop was definitely top of mind when making this issue thematically, but it wasn't necessarily, it doesn't stand central to the issue, but it's a big moment. Uh, it's a moment that I see a lot of people around the world celebrating, but also a lot of people not celebrating, which I find equally interesting. It's an interesting time for hip-hop to kind of mature into this stage. When you say people don't celebrate, do you think perhaps some old-school people from hip-hop, or, or what do you mean with that? I think everyone's equally as proud I think that first and foremost, I think all hip hop fans, all generations are just very happy to be seeing names like Jay-Z and Nas continuing at such a late age is something phenomenal to kind of see and to see that they're still relevant. At the same time, I also noticed that it seems to be becoming more of a media celebration than anything else. I don't, I was having a conversation about this, I think two weeks ago with someone and uh, we were talking about the 50 year anniversary and it was like, oh, there are a lot of key players within not necessarily hip-hop music itself, but hip-hop culture in its broader sense, so other publications, institutions, organizations, and they tend to lean less heavily on it. So there's always this friction and conversation and question around uh, who's celebrating it and why are they celebrating it. Although we're all happy and proud, I think as hip-hop fans, uh, you do notice that there is a bit of a question with some people like, mm, is this not more of a media spectacle or a you know, gives Nike or Adidas more of a reason to celebrate hip-hop than it is celebrating the culture itself. Well, fair enough. I was looking at Get Familiar, issue five. I love, you talk to people that are very knowledgeable, including musicians who are, I mean, they certainly are hip-hop, but for example, Thundercat, I mean, it's not just hip-hop. There's a little bit of jazz, a little bit of electro. So tell us a bit more about the main idea for Get Familiar. It's not necessarily your traditional hip-hop magazine. No, and it's a fair point you say. So I'm super thrilled to have been able to speak to someone like Thundercat, who lies very much at the cusp of jazz and hip hop, 
someone like Ezra Collective was very much jazz influenced by hip hop, but at the same time, a loyal Karner, but also a Rada Blank, who's a, a film director and Joan Morgan, who's an academic and journalist. And the kind of the main theme was, like I said, like hip hop's 50 year anniversary was in the back of my mind. And I was really curious about two things. How do we celebrate hip hop uh, is not necessarily a question uh, Get Familiar would answer. So the question was, what would Get Familiar as a magazine want to actually know? And it, to me, it was two things. It was what happens when non-white creative voices interact with white institutions and what, if anything, can hip hop learn from the institutionalization of jazz? So it's more of a question of, okay, we're becoming this big, massive thing. We're proven. We've got a lot of, you know, a lot of people are listening. The culture is celebrated on all different fronts, but it also becomes a conversation around, okay, but what happens when a non-white voice like this becomes so big in a society and in, in Europe and in US where it is predominantly white and what happens when institutions start interacting with it? So it became a lot about those two main questions and, okay, so it's becoming big and it's going to kind of be admitted into the creative canon, so to speak. But what does that mean? And then the question with me became, well, has this ever happened before? And I looked to jazz actually to start answering those questions because it has happened with jazz. And that was something I was really curious in kind of understanding. So speaking to people that had one foot in jazz and one foot in hip hop were extremely interesting people to speak to. But at the same time, also the question of how does this work outside of music? Uh, and that's where Joan Morgan and Rada Blank come in where Rada Blank can talk about the world of cinema and theater, and Joan Morgan can talk about her acceptance into the world of academia, all very much hip hop related, but at the same time, a much broader conversation than just the music. Yeah, which is the idea of the magazine, right? And tell us a bit about the, the format. I mean, I have in front of me four different covers and they are extremely beautiful. They're, they're very impressive. Is that, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the first time you have multiple covers or you always have done that? No, 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 no. I've done multiple covers before. This is the first time I'm doing four covers. So there's one with Loyal Karner, mm -hmm. one with Thundercat, one with Camilla George from mm -hmm. London, the saxophone player and a composer. And the final one, Rada Blank. As always, the paper is super different. The designs are different. Mm. The font pairings are different. Type choices are different. And it's really about, okay, what can we do to kind of play on that front? And for me, it was very much a question of, okay, so the paper choice up until now has been quite unique and independent feeling, you know, thick paper, maybe a bit of a profile on the paper. And this time I was like, oh, what happens if I go for a bit more of a glossy look? What happens if I go for a bit more of a glossy cover? That was the, the idea of what would that look like if I leaned into it? And the magazine is in English. I mean, but why have you decided to do it in English? I mean, because even the Netherlands, I, I think you have quite a strong hip hop scene there as well, right? But I guess it's nice. I mean, I'm glad you, you did it in English because then I can actually read it properly. <laughs> yeah, English comes naturally to me. So my parents come from India, so they immigrated from India to Holland in the 70s. So English is a, something I speak all the time. I studied it in international school. So a lot of my daily communication was in English. So that's on one end. It's just a lot more native to me. And on the second end, it was really much about if I'm going to try to share my love for hip hop culture with as many people as possible, I want it to be accessible to people in the UK, people in the US, especially US where kind of hip hop culture comes from. They should be able to access the content. But it's incredible the power of hip hop because, you know, I look at music charts every week. We have a show here on Monaco. I mean, honestly, from Uzbekistan to Brazil, I mean, hip hop is present globally in different manners. So it's good that we have a title like yours, Get Familiar, which is, you know, talks about this interaction between hip hop and the world in a way, right? 
Right. And that's completely the point is how does it interact with not only the world around us, but the politics and the economics and the sociopolitical themes around us. I always say like, if you're culturally engaged, you'll love the magazine. You don't have to know anything about hip hop to actually understand what it is we're talking about. And, you know, whether that be gentrification or sexism or intergenerational inheritance, the themes are so much bigger than what people might perceive to be hip hop. But at its essence, that's exactly what hip hop is about. Uh, whether that be in Brazil or whether that be in Egypt or whether that be in India, even those are still the overarching themes. And I think to celebrate that and to be able to give it context is super important. And finally, I would like to know you are at issue five, which is a great number to be at. How's it going? How do you feel? Do you have a very strong community dedicated to get familiar? Are you still perhaps on the hunt for new readers? Tell me more about this business side of things. Yeah, the business side. So when I started issue one, I wasn't even sure issue two would ever see the light of day because I was just very curious to understand, do people want to part with their money for this? Uh, are they interested in these type of interviews and content? And then as it progressed, the magazine won a few awards and continued to gain a lot of traction with consumers, which is super lovely. But I think from a business standpoint, it's really a case right now of, it's also one of the reasons why it has a glossy cover, why it's looking to kind of see what happens when we try to place it a little bit more as a more of a mainstream title instead of an indie title. Does it then move more units, so to speak? But does it then also reach people that would otherwise not be able to see it? So I, I'll be at Mag Culture and the kind of the independent places. I'll be at Uptonaim in Amsterdam. So like that, I just wanted to also kind of start tapping into, and I continue to want to tap into the broader mainstream environment because I really do think it's a title with mainstream appeal. So the question is, how do we get it there? Those are the type of things I'm asking myself right now. Thank you very much, Arjun. And for more, go to getfamiliarmag.com. That's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, email me, fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you from one of the covers from the latest issue of Get Familiar. Here is Thundercat with Dragon Ball Durag. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.